Welcome to the Health Lab, Episode 7. I am your host, Joel Blant. Today features Tracy Dignam. Tracy is a Renaissance woman of sorts. She is a lecturer at Capilano University in their Rehabilitation Assistant Program where she teaches anatomy courses. She is a physiotherapist by trade. She is a researcher and she is also a meditation instructor. In fact, she is involved in the Healthy Body, Healthy Mind Program at Back in Motion. Just a little bit about the program. It is a free eight-week program that offers weekly online sessions on personal training and exercise, mindfulness, and diet. So really, a it's a holistic program. And again, it's, it's all in the name, Healthy Body, Healthy Mind, and anyone can join this program. It is free. Uh, to learn more and to register for classes, visit healthybodymind.ca. I will put that website link into the show notes. And and Tracy delivers mindfulness classes as a part of that program. So I'm, I'm quite excited to get curious about how Tracy has managed to really bridge the gap between physiotherapy, cognition, and, and mindfulness meditation. So let's get into it. Tracy Dignam, thanks so much for joining me in the Health Lab. Super, great to be here. Yeah, I, I want to start with your background. Um, you've got such an interesting background, the combination of physiotherapy, cognition, mindfulness. You know, I, I work very, very closely with, with many physiotherapists. And typically what I see, most of the physiotherapists that I work with, they focus a lot more on harder, objective, physical treatment, physical skills. Not all of them, but most of them do. And, you know, whereas things like mindfulness practice, mindfulness meditation, traditionally is, is practiced by psychologists, social workers, occupational therapists. Can you speak to what led you down the path from physiotherapy into cognition and mindfulness? For sure. And I, I mean, I'm always really clear and intentional when I'm introducing myself to people that I may be teaching about meditation or mindfulness. I'm not a psychologist and I'm not an OT, but I think I bring a unique lens, as you mentioned. So I quite innocently fell into this in terms of I have been teaching anatomy for 15 plus years. And it's a frustrating one because like learning a language, there's just so much that you stuff in the brains, try to pass the tests. And then the students in second year, I would notice that they hadn't really retained it. Mm -hmm. And so I started looking at different teaching strategies and researching on memory and, and um, did some research in that area. And then I, I kind of kept coming across mindfulness, but I wasn't, I was that, that sort of physio mindset that I thought, I don't, I don't know about that. Um, but I decided to try it for myself. And uh, started, I took an MBSR workshop and I started doing personal practice and became pretty convinced that this had a lot of potential. So from there, I started to use it with my students, which I found they were quite receptive to it and um, certainly was helping them with, with both staying more focused and, and essentially storing the information more effectively for retention and you know, retrieval later. Um, but then I thought, because I also have a clinical sort of side of, of what I do. What if I, what if I brought this into that clinical side, particularly for people with stroke brain injury, but also for people with orthopedic injuries that really want to optimize those results. Mm -hmm. So I started informally doing that and I thought, Oh, this is exciting. So I went uh, back to UBC and I, I did some research on combining physiotherapy typical, you know, balance retraining, strengthening program after a stroke for individuals with chronic stroke mm -hmm. with mindful meditation. And, and we looked at, at the difference in the outcomes. And um, I wasn't surprised. I mean, it was a pilot and smaller study, so it needs to be repeated, but great outcomes and amazing compliance. So I, I feel quite strongly that, you know, in terms of physical rehab, we need to tap into this. There's just so much potential. And I think that's the world that you're in too. So you're, you're certainly not a hard audience to sell. Indeed, you don't have to sell me. <laughs> um, but no, very, very cool. And um, no, I just love that marriage of all those disciplines that you've been involved with. And you spoke about that, um, that study 
um, about, you know, assessing the impact of mindful meditation combined with exercise, I believe it was. What, what were the parameters of that? Yeah, so it was the Otago Falls Prevention Program, which is a standardized program. It's been really well validated outside of New Zealand. And so we had all of the participants in the study doing that with physiotherapists in their home. Um, and then the control group was getting education sessions. So it was a pretty active control group. And then the mindfulness group, um, they were doing um, I taught the meditation and then they did home practice as well. Um, they actually over meditated. That was a weird thing to have to admit in, in my study was that we they over meditated because they got quite into it. Um, but then the outcome measures we had were physical, cognitive and affective. So we were looking at mood because that's typically what, what people look at. Um, but we were also looking at, at things like timed up and go and walking speed and some of those physical outcome and balance related ones. And that was where I, I was quite excited because there hasn't been a lot of research there. And so still, you know, early days, but seeing as how I really don't see there's any harm in bringing a mindful approach to rehab, I'm all for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's really, really interesting. I've always been a strong um, advocate of mindfulness with respect to um, really addressing physical as well as emotional symptoms that one might be experiencing. And I, I, I like how you tied in cognition to that as well too and how you used it with some of your students now you teach at capilano university is that right Mm -hmm. are are you still teaching anatomy there yes okay cool and i want to i want to kind of just connect this to your ted talk on memory and and retention and how we tend to remember things that we have an association with um so I, okay, so I'll t- but my background, so I've got a degree in kinesiology, I'm an occupational therapist, I used to work as a personal trainer. Um, anatomy has always been my strongest subject. It always has been. I actually, I taught anatomy at an orphanage in Uganda um, several years ago, um, just as a volunteer. I really, really liked it. But I, it always just jived with me. It always stuck with me and it always came very, very easy to me. And my question is, why do we, why do we remember things that we're more attached to, that we're more emotionally attached to, as opposed to things that we're less emotionally attached to? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's a little bit troubling. And I say to my students, that uh, they've got the right instructor because I barely passed it the first time. And considering that physio is applied anatomy, I, I clearly wasn't emotionally engaged in that same level that, that, that you were. Now I am, but, uh, but that was a developmental thing. <laughs> I hope um, you are. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when we look at sort of that, that emotional aspect, um, it really changes the way that our brain receives information, right? So we, we just can, can um, if we're intrinsically motivated because it motivates us because it's interesting and it's goal-oriented around our learning or perhaps it's, um, you know, just something that is really our curiosity, right? And for you, it was just part of who you are and what you were really interested in. Um, we know that we can just create memories so much more effectively that way. Um, what happens is sometimes we get into situations where we're just chasing letter grades and we're extrinsically rewarded and we just don't get the same kind of results. So being in a situation where you choose what that that field is, so you choosing to study anatomy, um, having a, a situation where there are not necessarily rewards. You're not, you're not striving for rewards. You're there because you're actually interested in it and emotionally engaged. Um, and then there aren't sort of those negative repercussions either because we don't want to set ourselves up for that sort of negative stress that comes with, with learning and grades. Mm. So it's like the, the positive reinforcement seems to be more effective overall. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. What's, what's the physiology behind that? What's happening in the brain? So we've got so many different mechanisms that, and this is sort of why uh, mindfulness is so effective, is that we just, we spend too much time in what, what I call chronic stress, right? So we're in a pandemic, it's really relevant right now, is that, um, you know, we're fine, we're, we're really well tuned for acute stress. Our bodies are great for that. We've got feedback loops that allow us to react and then shut it back down. But what happens is we get into these situations where we don't shut it down and it becomes this chronic stress. Um, And so when that happens, 
our homeostasis shifts in our body and in our brain. And so instead of having this really well-tuned system of taking in information in our working memory and playing with it and figuring it out and learning it and then storing it in our, in our hippocampus, um, instead we get into these stress responses where our hormone levels are off, our insulin levels, our inflammation. And so our brain literally suffers. We know that um, chronic stress leads to short-term cognitive deficits and long-term decline, dementia is linked to that, that chronic stress. So, you know, keeping our brain in that optimal health with exercise, with meditation, with whatever stress reduction techniques certainly is, is going to help. And that's, that's a lot of why meditation is effective. Mm. And yeah, I like what you said about um, just the effect that, well, stress, anxiety, fear plays on cognition. I was, I specifically remember this, this time, it was about five years ago. It was around Christmas time. Um, talk about emotional attachment to memory, actually, because I remember this very, very, um, very, very well. I was, I, I think I was suffering from the winter blues a little bit or something like that. And I was, I was Christmas shopping. I was shopping for gifts. I think I was at Guilford Mall in Surrey. And I, I literally was going into and out of shops, out of stores. And again, I was under a lot of stress, a lot of emotional stress at that time. And I was picking up things that I thought might be good gifts. And just, I was unable to make a decision around what to buy. So I think that's, that just resonates very well with me with the, uh, the, the emotional attachment um, and the stress attachment and, and the effect that it has on cognition overall. Yeah, we do know that in some acute situations, we have sort of better focus. But as soon as we get into anything more than sort of a useful stress response, then we start to deteriorate our, our sort of function. And, you know, long term stress, we see even physical changes in the brain, right? So chronic stress, we see um, growth in the amygdala, which we can't always say because something grows physically that functionally with, that we're, you know, there's a correlation, but, but that's a pretty big indicator. And we see, um, cell loss and, and damage in, in the medial prefrontal cortex of the brain um, that does some of that executive function and working memory. So we really know that it's not good for our brains to get into that state. It's just hard to break it. Mm, and I, I, I don't want to be quoted on this or anything, but I think I do recall um, quite a bit of evidence uh, supporting long-term depression and potential um, onset of, of dementia or Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, because it all makes sense, right? Uh, when, you, when you're in that long-term depression, um, you're just not maintaining that homeostasis. It's what's called sort of that elevated allostatic load, right? It's just hard on the system. And so when we have our hormone levels being off, we just don't have healthy body or, or healthy mind. Mm. And I like what you said as well about how acute stress can actually be beneficial on cognition and on focus in general, it sounds like. I'll give another example. Um, I golf a lot. And uh, quite often when I'm having a good golf game, my putting is phenomenal. And I'm, I'm dialed in. Like I'm, I'm focused, I'm concentrated, I'm confident. And when I'm having a terrible game, my putting is absolutely awful. Is, is that, does that speak to that a little bit, that acute, acute stress and maybe our, uh, how it affects our overall ability to focus and perform? Golf is so random to me because if you don't play it enough, you never know what's coming when you swing at that club, but anyway, at that ball. But in your case, I'm assuming that you're a competent golfer. And so you would see that correlation between, you know, your stress response. So our, our physical body responds when we're feeling frustrated and stressed. So odds are your shoulders start to elevate a little bit because you're feeling a little annoyed. And so before you know it, your, your swing's off. It's not what you're, you've sort of, patterned in your brain. And so we know that we used to really think that nerves like the vagus nerve that's, that regulate heart rate and, and breathing rate and such were really just about sending messages down. And now we know that 70, 80% of those messages are coming up from our body saying, you know, things aren't great down here and we need some, some regulation. So sometimes we can't even control. Our body just starts acting on its own in these stressful situations. So it's a perfect storm of emotional stuff, cognitive stuff, physical stuff that all intertwines together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And frustrating. Very frustrating indeed, especially <laughs> when you can't make a putt throughout the day. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, I took a sports psychology course. This is about, I don't know, 12 years ago. And that was really revealing about you know, the amount uh, that, that stress plays into day-to-day -day fluctuation in performance in sport. 
Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why you're seeing more and more athletes doing mindfulness and meditation is, you know, if you're going to train your body to that level, why wouldn't you, you train your brain the same way and really optimizing your, your focus, your clarity, being able to really downregulate your nervous system so you don't get too stressed. Um, you know, I know a lot of national sports teams that are involved in mindfulness. Oh, wow. And when you, when you taught it, um, when you started introducing it to your anatomy classes, were you teaching the concepts of mindfulness or were you actually walking them through mindfulness practices? So what I've discovered is if you want someone to be compliant, like maybe that's the wrong word, but if you want them to stick to meditation, which is what I want, because I believe in it so much. It's, I just want to sell it to the world. <laughs> um, so what I've come to realize is they need to trust you. So my students kind of already did because of that position. Um, but they also need to understand why it's going to help them. It's like anything. The more you know about what it has the potential to do, the more, the more you're going to be compliant. So I like to teach it that I teach the science. And I don't dumb it down too much for any audience. I figure people can take what, what they want to absorb, but really showing what the, the research shows. And we're just building that evidence still, but really showing what it potentially can do and what the mechanisms are. Because once people understand, you know, the potential to improve their sleep, for instance, who doesn't want a better night of sleep, right? or a more specific mechanism, you know, in terms of how it affects your, your secretions from your adrenal glands in terms of stress hormones or, or sort of neuroplasticity after a brain injury. So I actually tend to, before I do a meditation in any sort of context, I do a little quick education. Um, not a lot. I don't want to overwhelm people, but, but sort of motivating them to think, wow, wouldn't I like to get this? Because we can really you know, superpower our, our brains if, if, we, if we decide to stick to it. But unfortunately, when you're a new meditator, the whole concept of meditation and mindfulness is non-judgmental awareness. But we're not used to being quiet in our minds. We're used to thinking, planning, worrying, past, pre past and future. And so as soon as we come into that non-judgmental awareness of moment-to-moment -moment experience, that is mindfulness, people start to judge themselves. They can't help it. They're, they say, oh, I'm bad at it. I tried. My mind goes too quickly. Or, no, I can't. It's uncomfortable. And that's the piece that I just have to keep encouraging them on. And my students will say, oh, no, I, I get panic attacks. I get anxiety. It's just too uncomfortable. Um, so it takes a lot of education to, to build up that trust so that you can say, it's okay to be alone with that and just be kind to yourself and just keep persevering. But uh, so it's a bit of a mentor role as well. Mm -hmm. So providing that ongoing education about sticking with it. And, and I mean, it sounds for lack of a better word, I'll use a comparison, like riding a bike, you know, the, the more you, that you do it, you know, the better that you get at it and, and the more effective it sounds like it becomes. Yeah. Except for that. You're not supposed to even notice that you're getting better at it because you're not supposed to be judgmental. So it's a bit of a tricky loop, but it, that helps because you can have a day where your mind's just really busy. You're really tired. You've had a lot of big decisions to deal with. And so you may sit to meditate or lie to meditate and you think, oh boy, not going well today. We want to avoid that. We want to just say, you know what? You're here, you're present, you're doing it. Uh, it's a little easier in a group context and it's kind of fun doing it virtually. I never thought it would be great to do it virtually, but it's working actually. And I still think people are feeling like they're part of a group um, doing it live, you know, in, in real time as a group meditating. Very cool. So have you just started taking that on since lockdowns? Yeah, so I've, I've always done some um, on a volunteer basis to, you know, stroke groups or, or community groups. Um, but now, you know, then I, I'm doing some as well for Back in Motion um, for, for work safe clients and, and for some other programming. And uh, it's really, really satisfying because, you know, whether it's pain that you're dealing with or whether it's a lot of anxiety around being away from work or, you know, financial circumstances or family members, um, this is just another tool to help you in your in your rehab or in your day-to-day -day life to be as effective as you can and to live a more comfortable life right so who wouldn't want it <laughs> sounds lovely yeah it is <laughs> and, and do you do it via when you're doing it virtually is that via zoom calls or what's the platform yep so uh so far zoom zoom calls uh going to sort of zoom webinar type platform um but 
I find I, I want people to feel safe when they're doing it virtually. So they don't certainly don't need to have their video on. We make sure their, their name is changed so they, they can be anonymous because certainly you really need to feel safe in, in that uh, circumstance. But um, otherwise it's quite nice because people can do it wherever they are. Problem is in the pandemic, we've got people at home with kids running around, dogs barking, whatever. But I just say it's fine. You know, that is your present moment experience and just try not to get upset about it. Don't judge it. Just be in that in that moment. And if you lose your attention on what we're choosing to focus on, you can always just pay attention to that distraction for a little while and stay mindful there. Mm. Is there is there a certain I know there's so many different approaches to yeah. mindfulness. Is yeah. there a certain approach that you lean towards? Uh, what are the strategies that you're typically um, implementing? Yeah, that's been big for me in my learning is that it's to call meditation, meditation is like calling exercise, exercise. There are so many different types. And really, they are prescriptive in a sense in terms of the best ones for early stage meditators and the best ones for certain types of outcomes. So, uh, you know, early stage, we want to get that focus and attention going. We want to just get as sharp as we can so that we can stay present so that then we can explore some of the other things. So with a group of new meditators, I start with the focus on the breath, the focus on, you know, body scan and such, just tangible things that people can keep bringing their attention back to and the mindfulness exercises that are similar to that learning to be present in the moment we often don't realize we weren't before until we start doing this and then once we get past i mean we always have to keep working on the focus and in my own practice i always do the first five ten minutes just on focus just to make sure i'm present before i move on um, but then I start to explore some other techniques, um, such as open monitoring, where open monitoring is, is good for folks with chronic pain. Um, it's just basically being aware of present moment experience, whatever comes. So you're not choosing a focus. Um, and you sort of lose the, you sort of lose the line between your body and the world. That may sound a little flaky, but if, if you get into it, you, you, you sort of experience that sensation. Um, then there's other ones like mindful movement that are kind of what I've incorporated into some of my clinical practice. Um, just paying attention to that movement, which becomes very much like a yoga, mm. um, but mindfulness-based stress reduction type uh, mindful movements are even more simple than yoga. So I'll be doing, uh, say, a body scan with a group, and then I'll actually have them just paying attention to opening and closing their hand. And it's amazing how much we can pay attention to a small sensation like that. So yeah, there's a whole bunch of different techniques, and there's visualization. And so that's what's fun, is once you get into it, you can start to think, what will I try today? You're going to affect different brain areas, and you're going to get different outcomes. So you can play around with it, tailor it to the group based on, you know, their, their knowledge, their experience, what have you. Mm -hmm. And that same challenge comes up because then in a group, they'll say, oh, I liked that one. And we're trying not to be judgmental, but we'll just say, yeah, you know, that, that was a, that was a great sort of experience that we were all here together doing that. And we're trying not to say it was good or bad or otherwise, but there are, obviously we're going to have ones that feel a little more comfortable. We can settle into them more quickly. Interesting. Yeah. I've, I've taken a few courses on mindfulness and this this discussion came up in episode one with Philippe. Um, there's the bit about the raisin where you put it in your mouth and you smell it and you hold it to your ears. And I did that. I, I, I did that whole practice and I, I absolutely love that one. What, one that I use um, in my is a weekly mindfulness practice is, is that mindful movement. So mindful walking. I like walking near the trails where I live and just feeling the roots beneath my feet, listening to the birds chirping and just essentially being attuned to all of the senses around me. Personally for you, Tracy, which ones do you like to use the most in your mindfulness practice? So I agree. I mean, I think we spend a lot of our time in a beautiful setting thinking about our grocery list or our work to do list. Right. So I, I think we're, we're very much not always mindful and present when we're having these walks and, and experiences. So that's a great one in terms of mindfulness. I think of mindfulness as the way we want to approach our day to day life and meditation as the exercise, the, the, the practice, the discipline to get you more mindful. Um, and so I think my, my favorite, um, practice to do is start with some focused attention, uh, go into some open monitoring, and then I end with actually what they call loving kindness um, meditation, which 
it's really interesting and I have to build trust with a group before I go there because as soon as you say the word loving in a clinical context, it, you know, that can be a little weird for people. And also if people have a spiritual uh, path or religious background, they may feel that that's, I've had close friends that have said, oh, Tracy, that's a bit too close to, you know, my, my faith-based beliefs. And, and it's not that. It's, it's really just taking a moment to be kind to yourself initially with per perhaps some mantras and then wishing well to smaller groups and larger groups and such. And the really interesting thing is if, if I can build the trust and get people to that place, um, it's one that they settle into, well, I think we're naturally meant to be kind. And the research on it is they get some of the very best outcomes and some of the pain studies, it's, it's those loving kindness meditations. So it sounds a little flaky, but usually after about seven weeks, people trust me enough that I can throw one of those in. So you and get the buy-in. Yeah, yeah, because I would never do that week one. That would scare me. Fair. What, so how many weeks is the program in, in general? I like to do a minimum of eight. Um, in 2011, they did the first MRI uh, studies were public, published by uh, Holzel, um, and they did eight weeks of daily meditation. And in the course of eight weeks, that was where they actually saw MRI changes. And so, you know, uh, changes in the TP junction, chain, uh, enlarged hippocampus, shrinking in the amygdala. So actual physical changes, which again, that doesn't necessarily mean functional ones, but pretty indicative of something going on. And so I really think eight weeks is the minimum I like people to give it a shot for, because it takes a little while for, for the brain to evolve. Um, longer is better. But on the other hand, I like to go very gently. In the MBSR, which is that sort of traditional stress uh, reduction program, the very first homework is a 40-minute body scan. And I remember when I took it and we came back and we looked around at each other and I said, did you do it? And everybody, mm -hmm. No, or I fell asleep or whatever, right? It, it's for a novice meditator, that's a long time. So starting out with, you know, just five minutes, whatever you can do, figuring out where to fit it in your day, the consistency is the most important. And so by the time we've gotten through eight weeks, if people have been compliant um, or, you know, at least on the best that they can do, they then want to keep going because it feels good right? It's always worth investing the time in something that you know, I'm going to feel so much better. It's like a reset button on my brain. If I'm having a rough day, if I can just meditate and then come out of it, I feel sharp again. So you don't get that in the first couple of weeks. It takes a little bit of time. So building that foundation and, and growing from there. Yeah. 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 You, mentioned, you mentioned a friend um, or one of your friends said that, you know, people who might be deeply religious or attached to some sort of faith, um, some of these mindful techniques might hit a little bit close to home with them or might not resonate with them. Do you know why that is? Well, I think it feels a lot like prayer. And so I've talked to people of, you know, several different faith backgrounds. Um, and I'm a Christian myself and I pray and I don't Think of it as the same thing but i can see where there's an overlap so um i think i think it makes people feel like maybe um it is not in line with for instance if you're catholic it may feel like is this is this really true to my religious values um and then it may just kind of feel a little bit like okay i'm wishing them well but i'm not acknowledging any higher power or whatever else so i don't know what that is but what I would say is that um, when people do give it a shot, if they're willing to open their mind to it, they realize it is different. It's not the same thing. Um, and they can get quite comfortable with it. And maybe they can blend the two. Mm. So it sounds like it comes down to that again, that preliminary education about the benefits and, and what they're actually going through. And again, like you said, yeah. just kind of dipping your toes into it. Give it a shot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And figuring out what works for you. I mean, for some people, they may just decide... I want to work on my focus. I want to really improve my memory. So they just do lots of focused attention meditation. And you really do wind up with better focus and attention, but maybe you don't try to get some of those other benefits from the other types of meditation. So I'm, I'm liking that there's more and more evidence to support the fact that there's different practices and different outcomes. Mm, very cool, very cool. I, I want to switch gears for a moment um, and just come back to cognition. A little bit deeper. Um, you talked about sleep and its effect on cognition. Can you speak a little bit more to that and how sleep affects our overall cognitive functioning in general? 
Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. We still don't really know why we need to sleep, but what we do know is when we don't get enough sleep, our homeostasis gets thrown off. So all of those sort of natural levels of hormones that we're meant to have um, start to get a little bit shifted. And so when that happens, it's very hard for our body to regulate and, and avoid those exaggerated stress responses. And it's harder for us to um, create new memories and, and store them properly. So we know that a lot of things happen at night that sort of reset our system. Um, but people get really into a bit of a negative feedback loop when they start not sleeping well. Um, when people wake up at night, we tend to go right into what's called our default mode of our network of our brain, which is, it's our mind wandering one. Um, before people had phones, if they were at the bus stop waiting for the bus, they'd just mind wander. Now everybody's on their phone, but we still do a lot of this mind wandering where, um, you know, we kind of call it the monkey brain that, you know, swinging from branch to branch, just, you know, random thoughts, but they tend to be, you know, self-referential. So really thinking about the self, you don't tend to wake up worrying about world poverty or crisis. You, you wake up thinking about what you need to do, your family members, you can take a small thing and it can, you know, you can really start ruminating on it. And so you can get into the future, the past, whatever. But we know that that's the network that unfortunately we can jump into. And a lot of that's because that's what we're in more dreaming. And so if we can learn to meditate the minute we wake up from sleep, which is a strategy that I talk about in some of the work, in some of these sessions, we can stay out of that default mode network a little bit. We can get ourselves into the attentional network. Then we'll mind wander ourselves to sleep. It kind of <laughs> works as a strategy. So, you know, you can, a lot of times people fall asleep when meditating and that's a bit of a win-win. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, people that with disrupted sleep um, can use, use mindfulness to shift um, their brain back into a healthier place. That's what an excellent strategy. Um, personally, I, I've, suffered intermittently with you know poor sleep for basically my entire life and it's interesting as an as an occupational therapist i focus so much of my you know education on, on things that occupy us and when i'm occupied i'm typically not really stressed out when i'm busy when i'm doing things i'm not really thinking about what i have to do tomorrow i'm just in the flow of what i'm doing at that time and then for some reason 10:30 hits and i lay down to bed and all of a sudden it's, okay, I've you know, got an assessment tomorrow. I've got to write this report, got to host this podcast, got to go for a run, what have you. And all of a sudden the chatter starts. And it seems like, as you mentioned, mindfulness can be a great strategy just to dampen that chatter out. Yeah, and I mean, that has purpose. You need to remember that you need to do all of those things. Um, but then sometimes you just want to shut it down. 10.30 at night isn't when you want to have it. So yeah, that that's that sort of monkey brain that can be quite frustrating and and it can happen at different times of the day, but if it's happening when you're trying to go to sleep or in the middle of the night, then it does really make sleep challenging. Uh, is there any quick strategy that you might be able to provide without going into too much detail of how somebody out there might be able to just quickly approach that if they're having difficulty sleeping? What I say is, um, if you've ever done a body scan meditation, which is simply, you know, it's, it's typically guided, it would be, you know, uh, someone giving commands in terms of what you're trying to pay attention to. But you go from one body part to the next, and you try to just focus on all of the sensations associated with that body part. So if I wake up in the night, um, I very quickly choose whatever body part is providing the most sort of sensory input to my brain and I start focusing on it. And for me, it's often the palms of my hands or it might be my feet. So I don't let thoughts start to creep in. I just right away, I'll go feet or hands. I'll just start <laughs> thinking about the sensations in there. And then you can gradually start to creep up. Maybe, you know, you start at your feet and start to work your way up. If you're lying on your back, it makes it a little easier because when you're lying on your back, you've got all the sensations of pressure, you know, your heels, your calves, your legs, and that gives you quite a bit to pay attention to versus if you're sitting up and there isn't as much to pay attention to. So you just start paying attention to those physical sensations. And as soon as the mind wanders, just like when you're meditating, when the mind wanders, non-judgmentally, you just go, oh, no, we're focusing on our feet or we're focusing on our hands or the back of our head. And it may sound really trivial, but it just allows you, I've, I've talked to a lot of people that, that this works really well for them, is that you just don't let yourself go to those thoughts. You kind of keep bringing yourself back. And the more you practice meditation, the easier it is to do that. 
Interesting. So again, just doing that, shifting that focus really helps to dampen those persistent, pervasive thoughts that you might be experiencing in that time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because I mean, once we start to get into that arousal mode, it's just so much harder to settle back down again. And then you get into that vicious cycle, that snowball pattern. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people live with that all the time. I mean, that's, I, I, again, I, I'm a physio, not, not an OT or a psychologist. So I, I don't like to talk as much about sort of anxiety and, 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 uh, clinical conditions, but, but I do know people under chronic stress, which is sort of the way I like to frame it. Um, they're just in that loop all the time. And so they don't want to be alone with their brain. They want to either be watching TV or listening to music or in a conversation because that being alone, um, then they start to see those thoughts. And it's interesting, both clinically and, and in, in studies, you see that when people start to study mindfulness, um, if you measure their mindfulness at the beginning, and then you measure their mindfulness at the end. Like in my study, it was one thing that actually their mindfulness got worse, which sounds really bad, but it's their self-reported mindfulness. So I was at a conference in New Zealand presenting it and I was in a group of medical professionals doing similar and we all kind of confessed that, wow, our, our group got less mindful. And I've come to realize that's because they finally figured out what mindfulness was and they actually stopped trying to be busy all the time and started to notice that the brain does that, right? Mm. And it, if you have a mind, it will wander, it's okay. But people don't really realize that. And so they tend to score themselves, oh yeah, no, I'm paying attention. I'm paying attention to when I eat, I'm paying attention to when I dress. And then actually, once they start to work on it, they go, yeah, I didn't even notice that I ate that piece of toast or where was that cookie, right? So we realize that we're, we're not as mindful as we thought we were. Interesting. And I like what you said about paying attention to what you eat, paying attention to, you know, putting your clothes on, what have you. And that's, that sounds like that's, and this again came up in episode one with Philippe as well, because he actually, he, he has a pretty regimented mindfulness practice, but we also talked about those unplanned experiences of mindfulness, not just setting aside 15 minutes throughout the day, but just being mindful throughout day-to-day activity, whether it's, again, brushing your teeth, eating, taking a shower, what have you. It, it sounds like there's great benefit to, to approaching it like that as well. Oh, for sure. Because then we're not just getting the effects of you know the actual meditation practice. We're actually getting it throughout the course of our day. And really, in terms of the way we live our life, then we're actually living it. We're not somewhere else we're, we're in that present moment that can be challenging for someone with chronic pain or for someone who's going through a really difficult time um, so there there are times when we we need those distractions but um, i'm actually taking a, a program right now through u of t for chronic pain management with with mindfulness mm-hmm. and um, so one of the exercises is the mindful shower because even people with pain, a warm shower usually feels good for them or a cold one. Um, and that's, it's, it's a challenging one to stay mindful in the shower, really experiencing the sensation of water on your skin and such. Um, so those kind of activities are kind of fun. You know, my sister-in-law decided to try making stairs her mindfulness activity. Okay. And she thought, well, then I won't fall down the stairs either. So that's a win-win. <laughs> but so choosing some things intentionally, and then it becomes more your habit. When I started to meditate and become more mindful, and I don't think I naturally had much trait mindfulness to start out with, um, I, uh, I started to notice things like birds and flowers and <laughs> these things that have been there, but I really wasn't <laughs> paying attention to. And so it, you know, it, life becomes sort of more full. It does too. And, and it, my experience also um, in, in just incorporating mindfulness into day-to-day practice, I kind of, I had to tell myself a few years ago just to slow down, slow down with what you're doing throughout the day. You don't have to speed walk to your car. You know, you don't have to take your laptop out of your, out of your work bag as quickly as possible. It can be really beneficial just to Grab that laptop, feel the sensation of the laptop on your fingertips, you know, feel the sensation of you poking that elevator button in your condo building um, and just approaching life like that as opposed to just rushing. And that was really, really beneficial for myself. Yeah. And, and the nice thing is, if you do that when you can, then when you are in a circumstance where you're rushed and you can't slow down because of, you know, time constraints, you'll just handle it better. You just won't have that same, I I think I've shifted my HPA axis so much. I almost can't feel stress, right? (laughs) I, 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 I do, I do notice that my body's, you know, maybe a bit heightened or I realize, wow, I got a little too much going on. Um, I got to get through this. Um, But I, I certainly don't get that sort of build up that I, that I used to experience. 
I'd like to see how you respond in a cage full of tigers or something like that. <laughs> oh, no, I'm not saying I wouldn't have any response, but, but also you can look at it more accurately because that's the other thing is, is you start to, um, when you get into some practices, you start to even observe your thoughts, which is a weird thing to do, but you start to become a little more comfortable with the way your mind works and you, you realize, you know, I'm a little hard on myself or, oh, I think I over worry about some of these things. So this was perfect for me because when I was really sort of deepening my practice, I was raising three teenagers. And um, so, you know, with driving and everything else that comes with raising teenagers, um, I noticed that I was very creative in my worrying. I think I'm a, I'm a great worrier. I can think of all kinds of things that my kids could do that could happen. <laughs> and then I, I started to watch my brain doing that. And I went, that's not helpful. Like I have to now notice when I'm doing that and just say, okay, this isn't something I can control. So let's try to step away from that. So I think it's also just getting familiar with the way your own mind works. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Kind of that, that distress versus you stress to a degree. Before. Sorry? I haven't heard that before. Well, I guess the, the concept is distress is, well, it's, it's distressing. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's negative stress. Whereas I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually tie it back into that golf example, even though it doesn't resonate sure. too well with you, but just sports in general or just activity in general. Whereas you stress is, is positive stress. It's stress that challenges us, but in a good way where we can right. actually perform well under that stress and experience success in spite of having that stress. And it's good because that's how we learn. That's how we develop. And I think if we protect our kids or, you know, our students from having those opportunities, then they don't develop the, you know, brain networks and the sort of capacity to be resilient so that then when they get in one that maybe they didn't choose to be in and isn't going so well, they'll come through it better with the learning, with the, you know, better developed prefrontal cortex, rather than coming across stress as always bad stress. You know what, that example with um, with raising children ties in so well to, to something that came up in your TED Talk, and you actually spoke about it earlier in the episode too, and it was the intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. Um, and I, I remember I remember in your TED Talk, you spoke about rewarding kids for for having good grades. And that, that resonated with me because I was, when I was in high school, I was kind of the classic underachiever. Okay. I didn't, you know, it wasn't motivated. My head was, my head was up in the clouds. I was focusing on other things. And it did get to the point where uh, my mother resisted it for so long, but finally in grade 12, she said, okay, Joel, um, for every A that you get, I'll give you $20 or something like that. And then it actually got to the point where she said, if you graduate high school, because it was going down that road, I'll give you $100. So I got the $100. Uh, I graduated, which was excellent. I think I maybe got one A in PE or something like that. Uh, so I think I made about $120. Great. Woohoo. Um, but I, I guess what I'm getting at is, is, you know, what's the balance between ensuring individuals are intrinsically motivated and not relying solely on extrinsic motivation when someone is engaging in goal-directed behavior? Yeah, good, good question. I mean, I think those rewards can change our behaviors. So you thought, okay, I want that money. I, I'm going to get those grades. And so, you know, you, you responded that way. Um, but in terms of setting up our brain to actually learn, um, that's not necessarily the way we want to, to stimulate it or, or the environment we want to be in. We want to set it up where we're approaching it with curiosity and where um, we, we are intrinsically motivated. We, we are eager to learn. And so how to do that, I, you know, I, I like the fact that more and more teachers and education systems are using sort of that inquiry-based learning where the student decides a little bit about what are they interested in within the topic area um, and, and really um, teaching themselves and, and really digging into that topic and, and but from curiosity rather than here's the list and you need to memorize it. Um, so I think it's interesting because with, with my own kids, um, you know, I, I was tempted to say, you know, you're, you're not going to get into such and such a program. And then I thought, because I, I teach in post-secondary, I actually think you're not doing anyone any favors if you, if you elevate them beyond where they're probably meant to, meant to be at. So people have to figure out, uh, you know, how hard they want to work. But my, my youngest um, is studying physics and he was like you in high school. He was just kind of 
you'd do what he needed to do. Mm-hmm. Everything was a pop test. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there wasn't a lot of studying going on. And he somehow managed to get into physics. And it's not easy. And you can't actually just show up and do well in physics. And so he had to learn to buckle down. The feedback he got from actually understanding it and getting excited about it and then actually getting some good grades in university now he's got some intrinsic motivation it was a bit risky he could have failed out of university (laughs) but but i feel like that was the way that he needed to go yeah so valid and and uh, yeah that resonates really well with me again you know my journey um again of being an underachieving high school bomber or you know for lack of a better word unmotivated individual we'll say and i think i failed science twice in high school went to summer school i've you know i've got a master's degree in science now so you know all, all it took was some sort of a level of engagement on a deeper level for me to be motivated and again experience success with with engaging in such topics and you know this actually ties in well a little bit with something else that came up in your ted talk too I, I, I recall you mentioned you like to travel and that you visited some U.S. national parks and seen some very engaging presentations. I've done the same. Um, I visited a few U.S. national parks over the past few years. Um, and I specifically remember, I, I think I've been to three or four of those uh, ranger presentations. They're always excellent. Um, one of them I recall, it was at Crater Lake National Park in Oregon. And it was all about this log that fell into uh, the lake. And they call this log the old man. They have no idea how old this log is, but it's maybe a couple hundred, two or 300 years old. It's been in there for a long, long time. And it's got this whole ecosystem around it. It sustains fish life and plant life and algae and what have you. And again, just, just thinking about, thinking back on that presentation and that talk and me just being able to recall right now all of this information about this log that they call the old man really speaks highly to how much you know how how engaged we are with the topic um and and how much a topic resonates with us and how much we're actually able to recall about that topic yeah and that example really speaks to to that individual that taught it because you didn't you yes you chose to go there and you chose to go on the tour but you didn't know you had any interest in the log but he managed to engage you and we had similar um, a number of those those experiences, but the one that stuck out was in Mesa Verde in, in Colorado, the cliff dwellings. And our guide was very spiritual. He was indigenous and, and he explained everything so intentionally. And our kids were young and I thought, because intentionally means slowly as well. So I thought they might sort of check out, but his passion was contagious and his, his sort of knowledge, he just emanated it. It was just so touching. And so I remember him very clearly. And so I think for our kids, because we have traveled a lot, um, what they remember is they don't remember the hotels. They don't remember things like amusement parks, which don't tend to be the way we travel. They remember those encounters. We do home exchanges. So we meet people and we, you know, have those personal emotional experiences with, with people that can share their culture or share their community. So um, I think that really makes for a rich experience. We've been so lucky. And now in this pandemic, I realize even luckier. I, I know, I know. I've, uh, I've been uh, secretly looking up international flights, knowing that um, it's a little bit unrealistic at this point in time, but hey. I know we were meant to be in France on a home exchange this oh, summer, dear. but that's okay. It's okay. It's not going anywhere. It'll come. It'll come. And yeah, that, that enthusiasm when someone's giving a presentation, it's, it's, oh, it's, it's palpable and it, it, it's so important. I, the professor, the, the one professor that I remember the most in my university tenure, his name was Colin Green. I have a minor degree in history. I'm a big history buff. And I, I took a course with him on ancient Chinese history. Okay. And this was a summer course. So we're there for three hour classes from, I think it was 7 PM to 10 PM Tuesday and Thursday nights out at UBC. And you know, it's summer, it's nice out. You don't want to be in class in you know, the middle of the evening, but he frequently lectured till 10, 10 30, 11 o'clock sometimes. And I recall, honestly, at least 60, 70% of the class would just stay. They didn't have to stay. The content wasn't on the exam, but it was just so engaging and, and, and just so enthusiastic that we really, really responded well. And I just, I, it, it really tugged on my emotional heartstrings and bringing it back to how emotion is attached to memory. 
Mm -hmm. And don't we wish we could all have professors like that, right? I mean, unfortunately, that's sort of the exception rather than the rule, but it really does help if, if you've got someone who, who can, can show you the, the excitement about it and, and really sort of light it up instead of just, you know, these are the facts. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Tracy, uh, go, going off course a little bit here. Um, if anyone were to want to find out more about yourself or if there's any resources you might be able to uh, provide to individuals, websites, what have you, books, anything about mindfulness or about cognition, um, where can people go? So, you know, anything to do with John Kabat-Zinn is going to be solid. So whether you're looking at videos or, or resources, anything to do with him, he's sort of the, the founder of Western mindfulness and MBSR. Um, he was a, a neurobiologist in, uh, and he went to University of Massachusetts. He has done, he founded the uh, Center for Research at, uh, at the medical school there. And so anything to do with him is going to be solid. And so as a result, there are some research centers around Canada and the States. So if you want free guided meditations, uh, the ones that are probably the most accessible are uh, UC San Diego, UCLA, and University of Toronto. All three of those, if you just Google those universities and free guided meditations or free meditations, you can get some there. And those are really nice ones. They're not, you know, strange YouTube clips. Those are, those are good solid audio clips. Um, and then I have a blog that's um, therapeutic-meditation.org. Um, and I just, what I do is I take um, sort of a, a theme, be it sleep or focus or or, or chronic stress and share a little bit about the research and, and I share some resources about meditations as well. Excellent. Thanks so much for that. I will include all of those in the show notes. And again, Tracy, thanks so much for, for joining me today. I, I learned a lot and I'm sure anyone out there listening has, has learned a lot as well. All right. Thanks very much, Joe. Yep. Take care. There you have it, folks. Tracy Dignam. I really, really enjoyed speaking with Tracy. Such a cool approach that she has to, to healthcare practice as, again, a physiotherapist, a mindfulness practitioner, a researcher, and an educator. So many great, great topics that we touched on and great strategies that she provided in terms of being mindful and its effect on overall physical and mental health as well. Join us. In two weeks' time, I will be having a discussion with Travis Streb. Travis is a executive coach and a leadership workshop facilitator. He works as a consultant and he runs his own podcast as well. Um, it's called the Men at Work Podcast, and he he's a leader of a Vancouver-based embodied men's group and a workshop leader for for men specifically. So we're going to get into a lot of details about Travis, his background, what he does uh, with respect to men's work. And um, just his his consulting firm and his coaching approach as a whole. Until then, stay happy, stay healthy, enjoy your day, folks.